Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of Engendered, we have Laura Fernandez, the clinical director at Sanctuary for Families, a leading service provider and advocate for survivors of domestic violence, sex trafficking, and related forms of gender violence in New York City. At Sanctuary, Laura provides leadership, management, and strategic direction for all clinical services citywide, including individual and group counseling, crisis management and intervention, and a program for survivors who serve as mentors for others. More than 5,500 individuals receive life-saving clinical services at Sanctuary each year. We will be speaking with Laura about the work she does with survivors, how to recognize symptoms of abuse in survivors, and how each of us may better support survivors in our own lives. So welcome, Laura. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So let's start with um, the organization that you work for, Sanctuary for Families. Can you tell us briefly what Sanctuary for Family does, what kind of services it offers, and what your role is here? Yes. uh, Sanctuary for Families is a leading provider of services for survivors of gender-based violence. Um, We're one of the only agencies that specializes just in serving victims of gender-based violence. We provide a wide range of services from clinical services, shelter, legal services, economic empowerment services, and overall work in various ways to affect change on also the larger scale. We do advocacy around policies and issues to hopefully improve the systems that survivors have to deal with. And you're the clinical director. I'm the clinical director, yes. Uh And I saw on the website that about 5,500 people annually, that was the number, go through your staff. Does that include also emergency call center intakes as well? That can include, yes, that includes uh, all the range of services that would touch our clients so that we have a hotline where we answer calls and provide immediate crisis intervention services, as well as counseling and shelter and ongoing more long-term services. So I did the math on that. That's the equivalent of about 458 per month, about 21 per day. That's a lot. That's a lot. Well, and, and the reality is we still can't help all the... The victims who try to reach us or access services, we know that it's a huge, it's a huge issue. That, that that domestic violence and gender-based violence is a huge problem in our city and certainly in our nation. And so, even though we provide a lot of services, it's still not enough to meet the needs. How many people are in your staff to serve this number of clients? I think I have a total of ninety-five people on my staff in various capacities, from you know very clinical positions to advocates and case managers who do more uh, work around the concrete issues. Okay. And um, I guess just for clinical services, or if it's not separated out, how does this organization generate funding? Is there a certain amount dedicated to clinical that you're required to raise on your own, or is it general funding from the organization that's distributed to the clinical services? Uh, It's a combination of specific funding that's targeted through contracts with the city and state and federal government, and then it's Sanctuary does a lot of work to raise funding just to make sure that we can meet the needs of our clients. So I have a, a budget that is dedicated to clinical services each year. And you mentioned that 
sanctuary serves clients who experience gender violence, including domestic violence. Also, you serve sex trafficking victims and other forms of gender-based violence, including female genital mutilation and victims of forced or child marriage. I was actually surprised about some of the latter because New York as a hub, you know, of immigration. Um, what's the distribution of these cases that your staff work with? How much of it is, you know, allocated towards domestic violence, gender-based violence versus some of the other areas that I was discussing? Yeah, well, I think what working those other areas actually came from working with victims of domestic violence and often... Through the work with them, we found there were other forms of gender-based violence that they were experiencing. So many of the clients who come to us with FGM have also experienced intimate partner violence. It's sort of like our, our specialization in that area sort of acknowledges that victims come sometimes with like poly-victimization and multiple experiences. So we have several staff who are more dedicated and have more expertise and language capacity to meet the needs of those, you know, other communities. But I don't have specifics on how it, like, plays it, out specifically because we sort of don't see it as totally separate. We uh-huh. often see it as, like, part of uh, a range of experiences. I see. And because those more, like, for example, victims of forced or child marriage, are these victims adults when they come to you or are they still minors, potentially? We've experienced both. We have done a lot of work in schools and so and educating and even work with the administration for children's services. So we do get calls from young people or people working with young people who are feeling at risk or feeling pressured. We've had cases where people were pressured to go out of the country. I mean, I think there was a child that we did safety planning from another country and helped link her with the embassy and help get her back to the United States. She was a U.S. citizen, but her parents had planned marriage in her country of origin. So we have work with young people as well. Wow. And just to clarify, I think I know, but the age of consent for New York State for marriage is 14, is it, with parental consent? or well, we, is- we worked hard as an agency to actually raise that. We knew uh-huh. our, it was 14 with judicial um, consent before last year and 16 with parental permission. But I'm um, thanks to the advocacy of Sanctuary and other other advocacy organizations, we've now raised the age to 17. And then 17, you can get judicial consent between 17 and 18. But even with that, there's a whole procedure and training and requirements about what the judge must do to give consent, because the concern was sometimes when parental consent was involved, parents can be part of pressuring a a youth young person. So we wanted to make sure that even for 17 to 18, like that year, that the judge is actually making sure that that's what that young person truly wants to do uh, before approving the marriage. I see. And so since we're still on the topic, if a parent were to, under the current law, try to marry their child off before the age of 17, they are committing a crime. Yes. Well, they'd be unable to do so legally. They might try a religious marriage in other... Like in in another country, that would still be a crime, even though it's happening outside of the U.S.? If it happened outside of the U.S., I don't think that it could be a crime. And that usually requires other legislation. Like, for example, with female genital mutilation, it was illegal here. And then we passed additional legislation to make it illegal. Like we have, there's a vacation cutting bill that makes it illegal to send your child out of the country on a vacation to do it. So I think, you know, with forced marriage, that may be something that has to come down the road. Right now, the laws are about getting married here in in New York, but there may have to be future legislation about what it means to send your child to do it in in an outside country. 
And your organization is involved in all of those advocacy efforts. Absolutely. They were involved in coalitions, both for female genital mutilation. There's a, a New York City coalition and also with forced marriage. We're building a coalition to both educate people about the issues and also look to see what other legislation might need to come down the road or training. Again, with female genital mutilation, we realized that it wasn't enough just to have it illegal here because you could just send your child on vacation to another country and mm -hmm. have it done there. So we needed to make sure that the law also included that vacation cutting and made it clear. And actually, our staff has worked with Homeland Security and actually goes to the airport as families send off their children for visits abroad to make clear that, you know, that it's, it's illegal here. So we go to sort of say goodbye to people going to countries where this is like a very common practice. I mean, there are certain countries where it's a very common practice to make sure that families understand that and also to equip a young person with being able to say, like, it is illegal here if they're under some sort of family pressure, even that their parents aren't aware of. So we mm. definitely believe that not only it's important to change the legislation, but it's also important to get involved in the implementation and education to all the people who are working with youth. And again, for, for um, vacation cutting, it means the airport staff. Mm -hmm. So how are clients generally referred to your organization for help? It comes through a wide range of ways. Some of it is, you know, certainly calling hotlines in the city and getting referred from the Safe Horizons hotline or other hot city hotlines uh, where people may call for services. We do a lot of outreach and training. We try to reach a wide range of people to kind of educate them so that they know that we are a referral source. So we get a lot of referrals from other professionals or schools or ACS or other partners in this work. We get referrals from other clients a lot. For a, you know, If a client has a positive experience and feels helped, they often go out into their communities. And I often feel like that's the best kind of referral because a client sort of is really saying you can trust these people. And especially in this current climate where immigration is a huge issue and we have a lot of undocumented clients in the city, it's very important that they feel like they can trust a place, that they're not going to get reported and, and, that, and that our services are free and all of those things. So some of it is just word of mouth by clients. Mm. And if, so if someone were to call 311, for example, and they have a need for someone who speaks a different language other than English, and they say, you know, I need to speak to someone to help leave my spouse, 311 would essentially refer them to do, do some sort of initial brief assessment and then refer them to sanctuary as one of the options? Yes. Is, is I mean, that, I think, uh, yeah, we're on, yes, all the lists to be referred. And I think also a lot of times they go through the the list of city providers. So yes, we, we, we make sure that we're updated with all the many languages that we speak directly and also, you know, use language line or translators as needed. But you know, we are l lucky that we do speak, including all of our staff, not just clinical staff, we do speak a wide range of languages. So there might be someone who's not a clinical staff member of Sanctuary who might be called in to do some translating? Yes, anyone can be <laughs> called in. We once had, had a need to uh, have someone who spoke Georgian from the country of Georgia, and it turned out our admin assistant is from Georgia. Wow. So we, we, used, you know, we used him because he could communicate easily, uh, and we could at least make it, you know, give whatever kind of crisis help or information that was needed. Okay. When they come through you, what's the process? They have to do some sort of intake? Is it on the phone or are they scheduled to come in person? Can you walk us through that? Well, for, I mean, we have a little bit of different procedures depending on our different sites. But here at the our main office, people would call first and we have a crisis intervention specialist who is 
you know, our goal is to answer, you know, calls live as much as possible to sort of just go through some screening um, process. Part of it is to make sure, uh, is to figure out what that person needs if they're a, a victim of gender-based violence or domestic violence, because we do get calls from people who are like, I need housing or I need, you know, that, that really aren't victims of DV. So we, we, we work to screen that in. And then we want to make sure that we have the service that they need before we go too far. Like sometimes a client may need shelter and that's really, really their core issue. And if we know our shelter is full or that they don't, they can't safely be in one of our shelters because of the location, we are going to quickly refer them on to another agency. Otherwise, we're going to refer them to the appropriate service within our agency and that person will then set up an appointment. Okay. And then once they come in, that person that conducts the more extensive intake is essentially their case manager? They're set up as a case manager? Usually they go straight to a clinician. Um, I mean, our clinicians do intake here and then we use our clinic, as part of our clinical intake, we may screen if they have concrete issues and they go to a case manager at that point. But a lot of our clients, I mean, we have two sort of maybe two different big paths. If people are coming to shelter, then they're going to get assigned, you know, one track. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're coming into our clinical program, in our non-residential program, they're going to first speak to a counselor who will flag if there are other concrete issues that they need to be a case manager. But I would say the majority of the clients come to us because they need to get clinical services. And so that's our priority. Okay. And the people in your staff who would be serving these clients, they're social workers or psychologists or some somebody with some sort of clinical training. Yes. Are there any standardized uh, intake assessments that you use to determine whether someone is, you know, legitimately a victim of gender-based violence or domestic violence? We don't use any. I mean, we are using a tool that was kind of taken from Jackie Campbell's dangerousness assessment, but we're using that more not to determine if they are a victim, but more to do safety planning with them and to kind of prioritize and educate them about the risk they, they may be in. Sometimes clients may not be aware that some of the risk factors. Like, for example, we do ask you know clients if their partner has been suicidal or threatened suicide because they may not see that as a big risk to them. But we know based on research and statistics that that's a huge risk. So we use that to determine safety. We basically... I think we really listen to the survivor about whether or not they're a, a victim. And we do ask them if, if it's you know confusing, we'll ask to get a sense of their story. But we're not really using any tool to determine if they're a victim or not. We're using some tools, sometimes standardized tools, more to determine their like trauma symptoms and to help us do a treatment plan. And what kind of training, both initial and ongoing, do you provide to your clinical staff to make sure they have all the right tools available? Well, all staff, including non-clinical, all staff coming to the agency have to go through a two-day training, I guess one day more about like the agency and some of the work we're doing. But we do cover at that point, you know, a sort of gender-based violence 101, tra- you know, trauma-informed work and the impact of trauma on clients, which also includes a section on self-care for clinicians because that's a critical point. Um, so that is something that everyone gets. The majority of our Clinical staff will go on for more specialized trainings, like training in TFCBT, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. Some people are trained, a lot of the adult counselors, in cognitive behavioral therapy. So they may go on to trainings that we have like found in specific interventions that we have found are highly correlated with like helping our clients and very like very successful in helping them on the clinical level. Mm-hmm. And then we do a lot of ongoing 
training. We have a monthly training, and we sort of focus on the different issues that we feel like staff are going through. Mm-hmm. And what about other modalities like EMDR or alternative, like Eastern, you know, treatments such as meditation? Yeah, we've or, definitely you know, done a lot of, of mindfulness. Uh-huh. We have not yet trained in EMDR, but we're very interested in it. It's definitely a new and upcoming one that we're hearing a lot about, but we uh-huh. have definitely a lot of mindfulness. We have a lot of staff, people on staff who are like yoga, like have trained in how to use yoga in clinical ways, uh-huh. like therapeutic yoga, because a lot of our clients have, you know, sort of body issues that come with having been through trauma. Right. So just to make sure our listeners know, EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. So two days doesn't seem like it's a lot for all that they need to know. No. Well, first of all, we are ideally, like we're, you know, we're ideally finding people coming out of social work school or other schools who's gotten training in school. So we absolutely look for like, what have they done? Uh Have they had cases in, you know, have they had trainings in trauma while they're in school? Have they done placements and or have work experience that that, um, makes them more experienced? So we we know that this work is really intense. So we're ideally recruiting people from the get-go who have more like a basis before they come to us. So yeah, the two days doesn't seem like enough. And then we do look throughout the year to do these trainings. And I think a lot of the training for our clients comes from the, I mean, from our our, our staff is from supervision. Uh-huh. I mean, and having an experienced clinician who devotes like an hour to two hours a week with you to kind of go over your cases and help you, you know, figure out how to use yourself in a clinical way and how to balance that a lot of our junior clinicians, it's, it's really hard to hold all that trauma and sometimes not always have an easy answer or solution. And I think right now, you know, a lot of our clients are outside of their domestic violence experience. They're also going through experiences around immigration, around the political climate. And, and, and you know, you have to be able to kind of hold that without being able to solve the problem because it's, it's not an easily solvable problem. When the client comes and they need support for their trauma, what is the most typical route of intervention? Is it just therapy, ongoing therapy, or is there something else that you find supportive? I mean, I think the first thing that's supportive, which we consider like starting at the beginning, is just psychoeducation about their experience. A lot of our clients you know, may even be questioning, am I crazy? Am I a victim? Is this like, so I think we still use, which we, you know, which is an old tool, but the power and control wheel is a primary to us clinical intervention to go over the the power and control wheel and just help them sort of put all that they've been through into that. And for a lot of clients, they're like, you know, wow, like I thought it was just me or I thought I didn't realize this was connected to, you know, that this form of abuse was connected to the whole picture. Uh, so I think that psychoeducation is critical. And I would say just some of the grounding, which actually sort of comes from mindfulness, some of the grounding techniques that we give to people just to help them deal with some of the symptoms immediately. Like what do they do when they feel flooded, when they get triggered? Like what do they do in that moment to get through the situation? So I think those are some of the things we do immediately. And I would say also the work around some of the immediate maybe concrete priorities or concerns. Like if someone doesn't know, like if someone's worried about where they're going to stay or how they're going to feed their kids or whatever, they're not going to be able to do the deep traumatic, like long-term clinical work. They need to sort of have their immediate safety concerns addressed. And so how does that work when your clinical staff needs to coordinate services with other members of the organization? Is there a handoff? Is there some official process for that? Or 
do they put therapy on hold and until you know the housing or food and job situation is or safety situation is sort of stabilized? I mean, it certainly depends on case-by-case situation. I would say that our case managers are sort of embedded with our clinical team. So often if there's a case with a lot of crisis intervention work, they'll work kind of hand-in-hand. And they may decide that at this point she can't – this has to be put on – therapy has to be on hold or something has to happen to meet uh, an emergency need. But it sort of depends on each client's needs. Like I think that the challenge with – Domestic violence is one size definitely does not fit all. Like each family needs to sort of get, you know, whatever their specific situation is kind of considered. And so that's why it helps. Before the counselors, the clinical staff did everything. And what we found was when they were had to do both all the clinical work and all the concrete work, the clinical work often got put to the side. But having them being able to access a person on their team to kind of immediately provide that support has made a huge difference, and they work very closely together. So they may have weekly meetings about a client. They go to team meetings once a week, so that allows them to really coordinate what they're each doing and making sure that they're working in kind of unison. Mm-hmm. And, and if it comes to other people, like with our legal team, a lot of times it will be like calling an immediate meeting. I mean, thank goodness for email. We can immediately kind of be like, hey, this is going on with this client. I think we all need to get together to be on the same page. Because sometimes if you have... If you're not on the same page, it can be hard for the client. If they have a legal case coming up and there's something the lawyer's telling them, which is not like agreeing with the kind of advice that the clinic or the whatever the clinical team is thinking, it's going to be very confusing for that and upsetting for that client. So if we can get on the same page and share information and be kind of as much as possible coordinated in our services, the better for the client. What kind of technology tools do you use to coordinate this kind of these kinds of meetings? It seems like it would require lots of logistical sophistication to make sure that everything is prioritized for each client correctly. Well, I mean, I think for the clinical team, I mean, there's a firewall between clinical and legal. For the clinical team, we also share the same electronic case record, which I think does allow us to read each other's notes, to know who's involved. I think that has been hugely helpful. I think we are looking for greater technology tools. I mean, sometimes it honestly is like email or like everyone get on a conference call at two o'clock. I will say that scheduling sometimes is like my biggest nightmare. And we are always thinking, I, I know at some of our locations, they use like instant messaging as a way to kind of get quick responses. So we are really always thinking, is there a better way to do this? And I, then I will say that sometimes old school is the best way. Like you just walk over to the desk of the people and be like, hey, we have a crisis. We need to get together. And that's why... You know, as you walked into our office, so now we're all um, at our old, we moved recently to this location, our old location, we were on like three different floors and you couldn't as easily do that. I think now we're all together and we do get up and just go to the other, to the legal side, to the other side of clinical and be like, this is, you know, this is going on right now and we need to get your, we need to pull people together. So sometimes the old school face-to-face or phone call still works. So do most of your staff stay in-house or are they required to go to other locations to serve, like, for example, the Family Justice Center, you know, have different rotations, for example, or maybe at the the courthouses? Or the, I would are say those most staff separate? We have separate, I was going to say, we have separate staff that are based at the Family Justice Center and we're lucky that some providers have to rotate, but the way it works is our people are based there all the time. So we have people who are working in that team and then we have people here. And certainly we go to other locations to do outreach and training as part of our regular work, but most people do the services pretty much exclusive, you know, in this, in their own office, which makes it easier. Okay. Yeah, that I would say. And 
And to what extent would anybody in the organization staff, aside from the legal team, need to be out of the office to serve a client for a crisis? What kind of circumstances would arise that would require that? We have had people, even clinicians, accompany people to a court date because it was such a difficult court date that having a clinical staff present just to keep the person, help the person like get their support they needed. That has happened. I would say maybe the primary reason is our case managers and advocates who would be going with someone around their benefits, like helping someone get public assistance, you know, or doing other benefits. And we've found that sometimes clients can have a very difficult time if they're having hitting any barriers and having an advocate can be the difference between getting your public assistance case opened or getting your situation resolved or not getting it all. So that's probably the primary reason that we would go out. We've also gone to In the child welfare system, there's family team conferences. We have had staff go live to a family team conference where we feel like our, you know, it's really needed to make a difference in the outcome of that situation. Mm -hmm. We were talking about standardization of services, and 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 you mentioned that each client comes with their own specific needs, and and you try to customize based on what their need is. But is there some sort of guideline around? A prioritization like safety, physical safety first, and then housing, and then assuming this client wants to leave their partner and has children, what's what's down the the pipeline? Like after housing, is it is it making sure they have a job or healthcare or making sure that they have therapy so that they can have the resources to then deal with the other things? Well, we have is this model some- that we call like we, well, we it, it comes out of maybe that the economic continuum that we kind of have, we have guiding principles around. And that's the idea that there's like crisis to stabilization to, um, to self-sufficiency. And that sort of is like a little bit of a guiding framework that Mm -hmm. like if someone like is in crisis, they need their immediate crisis needs met, which might be paying their light bill. It might mean giving them, you know, we have a client grant process where you can like sometimes do like get a client, pay a month of rent or do some immediate need because right now they need food. They need, so that, you know, and I think for crisis in the, the therapy level, it may be just understanding that you are, you know, that you are actually a victim doing the psychoed, and then the stabilization. And again, like the, the thing with the it looking different, it can look different to different people. Like sometimes someone can feel stable being in a shelter and having their needs met, and for someone else, that can feel destabilizing because like they've never been in shelter. So I think that that's where I guess it still goes back to the individual. Level, but I guess the goal is to go th- like eventually to give people the resources to be self sufficient. And I think we do a lot of work. We're very lucky to have an in house economic empowerment program where they really help people get living wage jobs. There's a, a commitment at Sanctuary that if you don't have a living wage job, you can't really be self sufficient. And a living wage job is not like McDonald's or a retail job, it's like a job with benefits and with like a professional track. So they have a whole program where clients are trained and placed in internships and go on often to get really like good jobs. I I think that's, to me, that's awesome. And it seems like a minimum requirement for all agencies serving survivors. Is this unique for Sanctuary? I think we're unique maybe in the, in the richness of our, I mean, we have a very, very robust program that I think, you know, I don't know of anyone that exists like this. People may have the idea of an economic program, but We've done a lot of work to come up with the fact that there's like seven keys that we all need to have a good job. Like all of us, you you need to have a certain level of education, of literacy. 
of different things, and they actually like help clients get to those keys that will allow them to go on. So the level of program we have is like very intense, and our outcomes are very good. So I think we are unique in that process. And we do serve also clients from other agencies. We get clients from uh, other domestic violence shelters that are also successful. And what they've proven is that even if you're in shelter and your life is kind of in some level of crisis, many of our clients are still able to maintain this regular job training program and get into jobs and do internships, even as they're kind of getting the rest of their life together. So I think that's like that journey from crisis to self-sufficiency. You know, sometimes there was a feeling, I think in the old days, you had to have everything in place before you could go to that. Like you had to have your permanent housing before you could go to job training or whatever. But I think we have a feeling that depending on the client, you need to start moving on that path as quickly as possible, because in the end, you're not going to be able to keep that permanent housing if you can't pay the bills. And I think not ha- being able to meet the needs is a major reason why people go on to get into other difficult situations or get back into a relationship. And I've seen people who have who are ha- facing a lot of barriers, like being self-sufficient, start contemplating, like, was the relationship, like, can I go back? Was it that bad? Because everyone needs to have the sense that they can feed themselves. And especially if they have children, like keep a roof over their kid's head, all of that. And so we really want to do everything we can to address that. Does your organization, because it puts such an emphasis on self-sufficiency, does it work in any advocacy areas around addressing the gender pay gap? That's an interesting one. I think we've, we have not focused on that. We focus a lot on the job training. There's a lot of emphasis like in the job training world on certain categories, like like people getting out of jail, other certain categories, children aging out of foster care. And I think we've done a lot of advocacy around the fact that this should be a priority area for funding for job training, that that you know, women coming out of abusive relationships and just and, and having access to the training and support they need to get into certain level of jobs. That's, I think, where our advocacy has mainly gone so far. And what about the children? When clients come with children in the relationship, what kind of services does Sanctuary offer to the children? Well, we offer a range of, of services from individual counseling, groups, childcare. We have a therapeutic childcare where if you're um, over a year and you're, the parent is getting services, the child can go to a childcare room so that the parent can you know, have their services without distraction. The thing that we are rolling out now is that before, if you came for like adult counseling and you had children, but you didn't express an interest in children's counseling, we might not have made the referral. But now we are screening every family for family services. So if a parent comes in and there are children, we are screening, we are giving information and screening to see if those, if we recommend services for the children. And and again, it'll be up to the parent whether or not they want it, but we kind of want to acknowledge that domestic violence has an impact on the entire family. And ideally we look at the whole family and their dynamics um, in offering services. And we're also excited that we have a right now, someone who's designated to be a family counselor, because before it was like children's services and adult services. And really the important thing we see now is that repairing the kind of any challenges to the attachment between a parent and child uh, is so critical that the survivor parent, because sometimes trauma like interferes in like the attachment and into the relationship. So our goal is kind of to provide like focus on like repairing that and strengthening that bond, which I think is really important. And how does this trauma show up in both the client survivor as well as in the children typically? I think a lot of the symptoms of like post-traumatic stress, a lot of 
being triggered, the f- having nightmares, sleep disorders. A lot of our clients have sleep disorders, both adults and children. I mean, somatic issues like the stress kind of coming into your in headaches and in feeling sick in various ways. I think for the kids, a lot of it in regression, like so maybe going backwards to an earlier phase of development, like children regressing to potty training. I think the challenge for the parents is a lot of times the children, like the parents often go inward to depression and kind of like feeling isolated. And and then the children sometimes act out ex, like more externally, like with tantruming and difficult behavior, clinginess. And I think the challenge for the parents is sometimes that feels like the child is acting out against them when really the child is just expressing what they've been through in the only way they know how. And so really supporting both through that. So your clinical services, I'm guessing also in the psychoeducation part addresses how trauma symptoms show up so that the client can better understand how to be supportive of their child. Yep. And I think one of the things we're excited uh, is that we have staff now training in child parent psychotherapy, which is a model for parents and, you know, that you can see children from zero to like five. And that was an area that we didn't have as much targeted like we had therapeutic childcare, but not as much work with the really young children. And, re- and and a lot of the work of that model is helping a parent understand and recognize like the way that their child may be experiencing trauma and also really reflecting a lot on the, our, our clients' childhoods and the way that the messages and what they went through in their childhood. I mean, a lot of our clients, the domestic violence is not the, is not the only trauma they've experienced. They've had sometimes like childhood traumas. They've experienced witnessed domestic violence in their childhood. And that really does, that can play a, a role in how you're parenting or how you're reacting to your child. So it, I think we're really pleased that we're doing that. And we also got trained in um, parenting journey, which is kind of a, a parenting model. And it's a lot, it's a lot less about telling you what you're doing wrong or telling you how to discipline your kids or give them time out. And it's much more about like understanding the journey of your childhood and then what kind of journey, you know, what, how do you want to parent your child and how do you want to do it differently? You know, what do you want to bring to your parenting? Not just like, re- sometimes we repeat things with that if we don't really have the chance to think about it. And everyone loves parenting journey. It also comes with like, you have to serve them an actual meal and kind of you have to nurture the parent. And I think parents need a lot of nurturing. I think a lot of times... In, in domestic violence, the children are acting out in a certain way or having problems in school, and the parent becomes sort of like the target of all the things that they're doing wrong or not for the parent. And we really want parents to feel supported because they are they and their child are both going through this really difficult experience. In terms of the health literacy that some of the stakeholders who work with the client and the child may have around trauma, like schools yeah, so we got a lot know, of like, or ACS or law enforcement or maybe the courts. Does Sanctuary do anything to help educate those organizations? Absolutely. We do a lot of work. A lot, I mean, a lot of work with schools around trauma and how to recognize it and deal with it differently. Um, is, sorry, and, is it is it voluntary? So like schools have to reach out to you? How, how does that I think it, it comes from different come ways. I mean, some of it comes from like, Schools reaching out. Some of it comes, I mean, for example, we have a client who's a, what we consider a survivor leader. She worked in a school, so she made sure her school was in touch with us and like working with us. So I think, and sometimes it comes from having a child in a school and then seeing issues and offering training. And sometimes it's, it's, sometimes it's training a whole, 
you know, like actually doing training for a bunch of teachers. Sometimes it's also just doing education to that particular um, school. I mean, we, we also work very closely with advocates for children to make sure that they're getting their rights in school. A lot of times parents just like we had a situation with children in shelter where the children were having a lot of you know, really challenging behavior. They've been through really incredible trauma and they were acting out in school and the school told the mother that she had to sit in school all day to keep them calm. That's illegal. Like you cannot, the school's responsibility is to get the services in place. They cannot make the mother sit there all day in school. So we had to really advocate and educate and bring in the advocates for children, lawyers, to make sure that that the school was going to honor their like what they had to do by law. I think a lot of times schools, when they see behavioral difficulties, they want to kind of make the parent responsible instead of providing the services that that client, you know, the setting that that child needs to be successful. Right. And and so if your client has a child who's experiencing difficulties that's showing up in school, the process is you might reach out to the school and contact their clinical staff and, and administration. And how open are they generally to integrating some of the new services. <laughs> I mean, I've seen both. I mean, I've seen schools who honestly do want to do the best, but their teacher, like, you know, they're overwhelmed. They've got a child who's disruptive to their classroom and they're like at their wits end. And sometimes they don't have access to the resources and support. So sometimes they're very receptive and sometimes not. I mean, I've really, I think a lot of it has to do either with the individual like players, like the teacher or guidance counselor who are involved in that child's life, as well as the like, leadership of the school and how open are they. So we've seen both. We've seen people incredibly open in like developing plans and being communication. And we've seen people who are basically like, we want your kid out of our school. And I think, you know, schools want to have positive outcomes. And if they see that child as like not helping them get positive outcomes, it's not good. It, it's also, I think, often a myth that people look at students who perform well academically as not having any kind of trauma. Oh, yeah. I mean, we can have kids who are, we can have kids on the spectrum. We have kids who can be doing perfectly and can be so, like, trying, you know, to be the perfect, to not be any kind of a problem to their family. So I think we do want to educate them. We get called in by the schools when there's a behavioral problem, most definitely. But we do want to educate the schools on all the ways that trauma can play out. And I mean, we ideally want them to understand that it's not just the acting out child, that it might be the quiet child or the child that's trying to be perfect. And, you know, like that it can really come out in so many different ways. And that, you know, being trauma informed means sort of like understanding that trauma, like trauma has this big role in people's lives and kind of wanting to get behind a behavior and say, why is this happening? Like Like you see a behavior... You, instead of just saying that's the bad behavior, you would kind of want to look what might be causing that behavior, what might be influencing that, what could we do to support a child through that? What is our environment doing to reinforce that behavior? Yes. So I guess that speaks to the workplace. Are, are there any supports that you offer clients to help their workplace not trigger them or to be more of a supportive environment. I think that probably, you know, is a tricky area because it's, of the, yeah, the I mean, legalities think, of privacy and all of that. Yeah, right? I mean, I think that that's something that we've, I mean, like the economic empowerment program is having a whole segment on that now specifically because they're placing people in internships and they want, especially after the whole Me Too movement, they want to make sure that people kind of have the tools to understand and are not like know how to handle in the event that they experience any kind of sexual harassment or any kind of behavior that that is triggering. And I think part of the challenge with some survivors is the balance between behavior that's triggering because you're like, because 
it's something that reminds you of like it's not that the the workplace is doing anything wrong, but it's just something that triggers you versus when you're experiencing actual behaviors and things that are are actually wrong. Like you're experiencing a hostile work environment Mm -hmm. or a very, I don't know, male-dominated environment where you're being treated in a certain way that that's not actually a healthy and good environment. How can you feel like you can, I guess, stand up for your rights or know, you know, how how to navigate that? So just to be clear, so you're saying that the clients in their economic empowerment in their coursework there, they actually learn about identifying those kind of power differentials in the workplace so that they can be able to respond in a more appropriate way? Yeah, I mean, they do a whole, I mean, a section on like the whole issues of sexual harassment. They also talk about how do you navigate the workplace? How do you... Like gender like bias, gender, yeah, all of that. microaggressions, yes. those kinds of things. Yes. That's and amazing. They, I'm really impressed. And I think they also want to really... <laughs> Well, they do a whole thing on, I mean, in an economic empowerment, they do a whole thing on, like, racial impression. They have this whole thing where we go and watch, like, you know, movies about, like, what happened. We watch a segment of Eyes on the Prize, and they have a panelist to really talk about, like, the ways, like, oppression has played out in different ways. They do it from different standpoints. So it really is, they want clients to, like, see their value and see their place in the world and not feel like their place is less than or is smaller and to, like, feel like they can fully inhabit, like, the place that all of us deserve to inhabit in our work and in our society. Mm. They actually, you know, they do lots of interesting things. Like, they go, they go to the Metropolitan to feel like they belong in cultural institutions and have a place there. They And they get suited with these, they love, they get suited with these black new suits as part of the process that are tailored for them and brand new to kind of make them feel like you... Like you deserve a power suit because you belong in that environment. And they do a lot of visits and they hear from a lot of um, different people, including women in positions at law firms and other places, just to kind of give them a wide range of experience to prepare them for this world. So a lot of workforce development programs also have mentoring. Do, do, is that something that you have or might consider? I, I think they do a lot of individual mentoring and coaching, but I don't know that they have worked it into the how they've worked who, it into clients who have the clients. I don't think they have self-sufficient. Yeah, but you're, it's right. It's a good. It's a good idea. I mean, part of what we're doing in Sanctuary is really looking at, in general, like what we consider like survivor leadership is like how do you involve the clients who have gone on and gotten out, like in informing our policies, in supporting our current clients, our current programming. So that's a good idea. What do you? And your staff consider the most challenging aspects of working with survivors of domestic violence and their children. I mean, I think there's it's so many different levels of what's challenging. I mean, right? I mean, one thing for me that's challenging in this city is that housing is so expensive that, like, just the concrete realities of helping a client leave a situation and be in a place where they can feel safe and good, and like be able to pay rent. Like, it's very challenging. I mean, I think having clients go through these long shelter stays where yes, they're safe, but they're, I mean, shelter is not ideal and it's not ideal because there's a lot of power and control in shelter telling in a, telling someone how to clean their room and what time to be home. Like that's not an ideal model. Like, I mean, it's a model. And, and again, some people really may need that and need that level of support. But a lot, like, I just wish we had affordable housing for all clients. I wish that. And I wish we had like access to good jobs and good housing so that people could, not have to go through all they do. Cause I feel like those, that barrier of housing comes up over and over again, like clients feeling like they just can't get out of a situation or get into a good situation because they just they it's not attainable and we can't do, I mean, we can put you in line if you qualify for housing that, you know, that we can try to get you on lists and all that. But for some of our clients, they don't qualify. They won't, 
ever qualify. I mean, so I think that's a huge issue. I think right now in this current world, I think we are experiencing just the general political climate and our, it feels really like the the sort of the anti-immigrant, but also just the anti, I mean, the kind of anti-women stuff. I mean, like a lot of our clients are triggered by what's going on in the larger world and seeing, you know, having a leader who, you know, is on tape saying he can do whatever he wants and, you know, all that kind of like grab someone, you know. So replicating the abusive behavior. Yeah, like the abusive behavior and getting away with it. Like, so I think that is something that right now has been very hard. Like we're trying to figure out how do we provide support for our staff? Because in addition to helping that individual client, we're all affected by the general atmosphere and the feeling that like, you know, there's a lot of, yeah, hostility and and anti-behavior that's out there. Let's say you have housing and jobs taken care of for your client. I'm thinking mainly like community awareness and literacy around domestic violence and, and power and control issues. Like what what else can this organization do to support the clients in helping their families and communities understand so they could be more supportive and not ostracizing or judging or, you know, any of those things that might still yeah. make it hard for them to leave. Yeah, I mean I think part of it is the out you know, the outreach and training and all the work you do in communities to kind of bring that knowledge to people and like to all levels of like not just professional trainers for social workers but for advocates going into communities going into different kinds of PTAs churches like wherever it may be mosques like that where people are open to hearing I think that's one area I think it's also listening to survivors about where we're like sometimes it's our survivors who are like I you know I need you to come and do training or I'm part of this community and they're not getting it so I think that like kind of listening to where they see the need and I think I think our like also we have a whole group of survivor leaders who are trained who are doing the work kind of out in the communities and I think that is critical because I think in the end on certain areas like hearing from people within the community who are change agents is almost sometimes more powerful than someone from outside the community coming in because sometimes that's just like dismissed mm-hmm. like so I think that's part of our, our work and then just doing whatever we can I guess to I don't know change the larger discourse like to change you know, the, I don't know, to have input, I mean, when it's possible in media and all different ways so that different messages get out there that will influence thinking. I had spoken with Ruth Glenn, who's the president and CEO of the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And she has, I think she's one of the few advocates and leaders in the gender-based violence movement to actually take an active part in responding to the media and media coverage of these kinds of cases. And so since you mentioned media, (laughs) like what are some of the risks and opportunities that your organization might take advantage of, risk of engaging and and opportunities? Well, I think, yeah. I mean, I I haven't seen Sanctuary respond to anything in the news about anything. Part of it sometimes is like, I mean, certainly we've done like op-eds. I mean, I think we've done, like, for example, I know... We've done a lot of responding to like the sports media coverage, like to like the work with uh, like NFL and all, you know, like just really trying to hold them accountable. They claim that they're doing work around the pot holding their part, like their players accountable, but then that, you know, it doesn't happen or they like, you know, so I think we've definitely 
I guess because I'm on the list, I get all the press that we do. You right, know, I get a right, list right, of the right, press. Right, so we've right. definitely oh, gotten out there on you know, on that issue. I think trying to do op-eds. Uh, I know we've done a lot of work around trafficking and around, you know, like when I was young, we saw the movie Pretty Woman and like Julia Roberts was a, you know, the happy person who was saved by the whatever. Like we know that that's not like what the trafficking industry is like. It's not Julia Roberts getting rescued by Richard Gere's care, whatever. Like, so like really talking out whenever possible about those kind of like myths and portrayals of women. And so I think we all try to do it, um, you know, but it, sometimes you just don't get coverage and sometimes you're not quick enough. I mean, the problem with media is if you don't respond immediately, you're like, you're out of it. I'm trying to think we also responded, I think, I don't think we got any coverage. We wrote directly to them. There was some magazine ad, I'm not going to remember what it was, but it was for, like, it was almost like your date might, it was, was it for clothing or perfume, but it was kind of like your, your, it sort of implied that, like, get your date drunk and then you'll be more successful. I mean, that was the message, but it was supposedly flirty, but it was really, like, crazy and it was Mm -hmm. in, like, a print campaign. And Mm -hmm. I think we wrote directly to that place and sort of said, like, this was an inappropriate campaign. I guess if you were to be responding, is there someone on staff who's dedicated to this position? We have a communications person and they're they're dedicated to trying to get the word out and trying to respond and trying to have the op-ed in a certain way to get it into like, you know, so I think the challenge is that that actually is like a lot of, of, of work. And I think we do try, you know, I know yeah, the Dorchin, like our, in our legal trade, like, like we definitely try to get out there, get, get in media, get interviewed when we have other information that we feel like is important. But I think it is a challenge. And yeah. sometimes we're not, I don't know if we're not sexy enough, you know, whatever, if you're not, you don't get picked up. Ah, uh, I see. I mean, a lot of it is what media chooses, yeah. chooses to respond do, to. Do you guys do any training of journalists who cover this area to help them use the right language and um, the right lens for investigating? I wouldn't say training, but I think we develop relationships like with people and then, you know, through that relationship kind of talk about, you know, and, and use opportunities when they're doing press to like kind of educate them on these issues and language and all of that. But it's a good idea. Yeah. I mean, and so I, I just wanted to share that I had heard maybe a month ago when Deborah Epstein, the professor of law and co-director of the Georgetown University Law Center's Domestic Violence Clinic wrote her op-ed. She was on the NFL Players Commission, Association's Commission on Domestic Violence, and resigned recently, right? And she wrote an op-ed. And then subsequent to that, she was interviewed in NPR. And I caught like a brief snippet of it. But what was interesting about what she said was... I don't know if you heard. Did you, did you hear that story? I, didn't, I, okay. I, I knew. I so, read the op-ed, but I don't think I so, caught that. So the what, what she story. said that was the most shocking to me. Like nothing was shocking to me, but what was the most shocking is how she said that there was one point where you know, just in terms of building the culture of the NFL, the players' wives come together for some sort of shopping spree. And at the end of the day, or whatever, however long the shopping activity takes place, some representative from the NFL comes in and, you know, gives them a pep talk and and says, kind of like references, you know, how well the day went and how much they like all the things that they've purchased. And then says, and if your husband comes home at the end of the day and he wants to be intimate, it's your duty to be responsive to him and then kind of looks around and 
makes crazy. the makes the signaling that it's yeah. your you know responsibility not to refuse and and that consent doesn't matter, right? Wow. Yeah. So that I'm paraphrasing, but I'm going to look it up and I make sure that in the in the notes that we have the right information. <laughs> but that was like, what do we do, yeah. right? About those kinds of spaces, like we still need to educate our women and you know girls so that when they are in that situation, they can have their own critical thinking. Yeah. applied. Well, I think we still have a lot more to do, but I will say from my youth to like the young people I'm working with now, like there's things that I put up with just around treatment, not just around sexual harassment and like things you had to put up with that we just thought were par for the, like just things you ignored, things you kept it moving. And I, and I am very heartened when I see young people who are like, are you like, no, like I wouldn't put up with like I would or speak up. And I think we have more, you know, more to do and we will can keep doing it. But I think it's at least given me some hope to see like the tide, you know, the tide turning that people are being more held accountable and certain behavior that in the past would have just been like, oh, that's part of what Hollywood people do or that's part of what football players do. Or, you know, I mean, I'm uh, in a way grateful for all the count, like the, the cameras these days that are capturing crazy stuff in the moment or, you know, I mean, like and just letting us or Twitter that allows like sometimes like like an important thing to like be elevated that before would have been like one words person's word against another. And so, I mean, I we have a ton more work to do, but at least one thing of like getting older is at least seeing change and being at least some like heartened by young people who hopefully will never just think that this is par for the course or that like, you know, relationships come with abuse or jobs come with sexual harassment. And that's just what you have to like put up with. If there's something that you wish your funders would know, what would you say to them? What would I say to them? I probably would say that we all need more resources. Um, well, and I think, I mean, I think, yeah, you know, what would I say to our funders? I mean, I think I would certainly say that I think we're having great outcomes and that the work we're doing to help clients both clinically, but also with their concrete services, their legal cases, their economic empowerment, like it's a good investment in our future. And I think we need to think of like outside of the work that we're doing, like the work we're doing, maybe more work being done in schools and in different environments, the work we're doing to change our culture, like hat is, is in the long run, so much more cost effective. I mean, the, the cost of domestic violence to people, to lost jobs, to like trauma, to all of that is a huge cost that our society is paying. And if we would really invest not only in our service, but maybe in more primary prevention to really kind of get to the root, to do more work with, with, I'm thinking young people now, but I remember when I, years ago when I worked with teens, we asked like, when should you start learning about healthy relationships or domestic violence? And they said kindergarten. I mean, they're like, high school is way too late. And they're like, we don't get at that point. They're like, we don't get anything on healthy relationships. We learn about like sex and at that time AIDS and all these other issues, but no one is actually telling us what it means to have, to be in a health, what is an equal relationship? Like, and wouldn't it be amazing if like starting in kindergarten or pre-K people were like, like getting information about healthy relationships and about like gender equality and all of that um, so that you could kind of set the foundation. So I think those are huge undertakings, but we could start somewhere. And I think right now we're just not doing enough. It's like we're treating the damage, but we're not like trying to stop the damage from happening. Right. So essentially we're, we're trying to band-aid the symptoms, but not addressing the causes, right? Yeah, exactly. And not expressing it on a deep level in so many places, like in every school and every, you know, in all the places that in every healthcare setting, I mean, now people are supposed to screen, let's say for 
domestic violence when they're working in medical settings. But I remember I did a training for medical interns and they said, we have like two seconds to do this screening tool. Like, and they were kind of freaked out. Like, what if the person is like a victim? Like, what am I even going to, like, I don't even have any, like, I'm, I've got like next patient, next patient. So how are we going to be serious? Even if, if we're bringing forth like more screening tools, more outreach, more whatever to make it realistic, like to give people the time to, if, if like in the medical setting, if someone discloses the time to help link them to the person that's going to get them help. So a lot to do. Yes, a lot to do. <laughs> Which brings us to the close of our conversation. And in the spirit of James Lipton's Inside the Actors Studio questionnaire, I've come up with an engendered questionnaire. Okay. First question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? I guess I would say everything. And the future of our planet. What gives you hope? Survivor leaders give me a lot of hope. Like seeing the resilience that people have. People are incredibly resilient. And if you, I don't know, it's like if you give them some like help or like just, or even just education, it's amazing what they can do with that, like to transform their lives, but also to transform other people's lives and to, I don't know, transform their families. So that gives me a lot of hope. And this last question has several parts. You're welcome to answer any or all. And if you can't address it to the listeners, but also to you know, any of the stakeholders that you work with, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop? Well, we can certainly ask, stop asking why women stay or why anyone stays in an abusive relationship. That question has no, you know, no place. And we need to be asking, we could start asking like, you know, what are those factors that are feeding the cycle? Like what, you know, we've learned a lot about the cycle of domestic violence, we've educated people, but what are the like underlying factors? So we could start asking that and trying to go to like the start. I, I think we could do more with young people, and I think more, you know, more to really more to break the cycle with young people and to really invest in more primary prevention. I guess less, but it comes with the other thing: less victim blaming, less. No, sometimes less coming back to questions that I feel like we're already asked and answered. You know, more, you know, more like thinking, okay, here we are. Like, how do we go forward? to, you know, really think about the society we want to have and what, what ingredients do we need to have in that, in that area. So I guess it's like having new conversations and not, sometimes it feels like we're having, having done this work for a long time, we're having the same conversation like that we had already again, like, and we want to kind of transcend that. I mean, the day that like a domestic violence case is out there and someone, and I don't hear one single person say, why did she stay or why did they stay or that, like, then I'll feel like we really got somewhere, but I, we're not there yet. So Laura Fernandez, the clinical director at Sanctuary for Families, thank you for your time today. Well, thank you. It's been very, very interesting, thought provoking. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. Can Do It helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. Can Do It. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you.